0: Would you please meet me in the book of First Samuel chapter 15? First okay. Samuel chapter 15. And if you can, would you please stand with me as I read from First Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 11? You can check the, pew, uh, the chair Bible there in front of you. We'd love for you to have that if you don't own a Bible. We're going to be reading here from First Samuel 15.) <clears throat> This is what God's word tells us. <clears throat> and Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek, or what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. Can you say, do not spare them? Do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tilaim, 200,000 men on foot, and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, verse 7, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, would not utterly destroy them. But all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, said, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord, all night. This is God's word. Father in heaven, we come before you with this word in front of us, a call to obedience, Lord. And as we're here today, God, we know that many of us in our faith have been challenged in our obedience to you, God. Whether or not we'll take your word at face value or tweak it to our likings. Lord, I pray that today you would speak through me. God, I pray that you would meet all of us. No matter where we are at on the continuum of our faith, maybe today is our first step of trying to explore Christianity. Maybe today is 20 or 25 years into our faith. But Lord, we know you have a word for every one of us here today. Man and woman, young and old. I pray that your spirit would apply the truths of this passage to each of our hearts individually, specifically, and radically, God. Father, give us ears to hear. And by your grace, give us eyes to see all that you want us to hear and see. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to welcome you all to the brook today. To mention, 50 of our men are away at a retreat, which is why your pastor has asked me to come and speak to you this morning. I know what you're thinking. There is a striking resemblance between me and him. But since he's not here to defend himself, I lead you to know that I think my beard is better than his. My name is Samuel. In Hebrew, it means name of God. And that's what I've devoted my life to exalting. I was born around the year 1066 B.C. That's before the Christ. And I am the final judge in the land of Israel. And it was, to me, given the task from God himself to name and anoint the first King of Israel, Saul. Today I'm here, asked by your pastor, to share a pivotal story in the life of Israel and in my own personal life. Something happened to me today that weighs heavily on my heart. It weighs me down, even though there is yet still a glimmer of hope on me. Today, I killed a man, executed him in front of the elders of my people. He was a man of royal stock. He had, though, wicked pedigree. He was a thoroughbred in doing evil. But I need you to know something today. His execution is actually not what saddens me. But the circumstances that led me to this point where I had to do that. There were circumstances in someone else's life that caused that person under peer pressure to not do the very thing they were supposed to do. The kind of peer pressure I know you face today that tempt you to do the very things that you know God does not want you to do. I'm about 60. Five years old or so right now, and let me tell you what's going on in the nation of Israel. Chick fil A is closed on Saturdays. As one of my friends says, you'll get that one on the way home. A popular way for people to connect is Insta hieroglyphics. <laughs> You might see a friend on face scroll when holding on to your tablet. I mean, your literal tablet. Topping the Jerusalem bestseller list today is the five love languages, promised land edition. And then, of course, the book by our first lady, Becoming, the memoirs of Eve's days in the garden. Literally, our first lady. But on top of that bestsellers list, as it has been, is the Torah, the five books of Moses. In those books, we hear of Noah's Ark, the Tower of Babel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Exodus from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, and of course, that very popular story of Moses on the mountain, when God had given him a command, saying, when you lift up your arms, The nation of Israel will have victory against their enemies, the Amalekites. And when your arms come down, the Amalekites will begin to win. So in that story, a man by the name of Aaron and a man by the name of Hur take Moses' right and left hands and lift them in the sky until the Amalekites were defeated. And there in this best-selling book, the book of Deuteronomy, God says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you, he did not fear God. Basically, in this story that we read in our favorite book, is that as God's people, my people, came out of the land of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness, there was a people group, a wicked people called the Amalekites, and they saw us in our weariness in our fatigue, and they wanted to take advantage of God's people, my people. And so they began to attack us, to destroy us and kill us. And during that victory that Moses lifted up his hands, God said at the end of it, he says, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And God says, I am. I am. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. The one who raised this flag to give victory. For many generations, we awaited God's promise to fulfill fulfill that promise, to remove this people, this wicked peoples from the face of the earth. And when I was now some 65 years old, I heard from God again. As I mentioned, I was the last judge in Israel, but I was also a prophet. I heard God's voice ever since I was a child when my mother, Hannah, asked God to give her me. And I heard as a young boy, God saying, Samuel, Samuel. And from that time on, I was able to listen to God's voice. And just as when I was a child happened now as an adult, I heard God tell me, Samuel, tell King Saul, the first king in Israel, That he is the instrument through which I'm going to fulfill my promise to remove and destroy the Amalekites. Tell him to make war against them as part of my judgment, my hand, and destroy everyone and everything among those peoples. So I began to tell Saul this command, and to my surprise and enjoyment, Saul was eager to fulfill God's command. He brought together some 200,000 people in his army, and they went and rushed upon the Amalekites and wiped them out. I was thrilled to hear that God would put this on, Sam, on Saul's heart and Saul would obey. But then, as I went to bed that night, God came to me again, and he said something I had never heard God say. He said, I regret. When I heard God say that, I thought, God, how can this be? When I regret, it's because I've made a bad decision. What does this say? What does this mean? And God made it clear to me, no, 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 no Samuel. I don't regret as man regrets. Man regrets because they failed. I have regret That's a way of expressing my sorrow over man's failures. It's not that I wish I had done things differently, but it's that I had longed to see Saul do things differently. So I began to understand that God uses words that make sense in our ears to convey what he was feeling. Basically, God was saying that something that should have been so right turned out so wrong. And Saul had chosen, like an English teacher, to edit God's command. When God says destroy everything, man, woman, child, animal, everything among the Amalekites, Saul chose to edit that. And there I was at the crossroads of God's perfect sovereignty and man's weak will and freedom. And we see God's grief at this place. Now I was angry. In fact, I was furious. My anger was like the logs burning in a fire pit. In fact, my anger led me to a place that night I could not sleep. It was as espresso shots to my soul. It created a sorrowful kind of insomnia as I lay in bed that night and I prayed all the night, saying, what will you have me do, God? Early the next morning, I woke up to find Saul. I went to where I thought I'd find him in a place called Carmel because I was towards the direction of where these Amalekites were supposedly being. And as I approached the place, I saw a man, and I'll never forget what he told me. And I quote, The man says this. You can see it even in your own Bibles in verse 12. He said, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Now, I thought that was pretty interesting. Why would he set up a monument for himself when he just messed up horribly? Why would he set up a monument to praise his own failure? That's like a professional athlete missing the game-winning shot and putting a statue in front of the arena the next morning. Saul, what are you thinking? So I continued on and I journeyed and finally I could see Saul at a distance and there on the green pastures, I could see lamb and oxen. The very things Saul was supposed to destroy, they were there feeding. And I came to Saul. I said, Saul, what's going on here? And Saul with a smile said, hey, Samuel, I did everything that God commanded me to do. I don't know what the fox says, but I know what a lamb says. And I went to Saul, I said, Saul, what then is this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears? If you obeyed all that God commanded you to do, where did these sheep and oxen come from? How can this be? And his response still echoes in my mind. He says this, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we've devoted to destruction. Basically what Saul's telling me is, we spared the sheep, even though God told me not to, because we want to sacrifice those sheep to God. But then he goes on to say, the people did this. Now, I noticed personal pronouns. He said, and also other pronouns, he said, the people spared the sheep to sacrifice to the Lord your God. So I thought this was your God too. Why are you saying my God? See, this is already something I'm noticing that's going on in Saul's heart. I'm seeing him make excuses like Adam and Eve in the garden. And so I shouted out to him, Saul, stop it. Quit it. Stop what you're doing. The people, they're your people. You're the king. The Lord, your God, he's supposed to be your God, Saul. But then Saul pressed on even harder as I confronted him. I I told him, Saul, look, it's God who made you the king of Israel. It's God who pulled you out. When your family was not worthy of it. It was God who set you on a throne. It was God who gave you this instruction. It was God who gave you victory. And so why do you stand here blaming the people? And what he does, he goes on even more in verse 20. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil that's what we call throwing someone under the camel see what happens is when you are guilty and you've tried to justify it you're going to find yourself arguing your innocence before a righteous judge here the editor Saul had taken apart God's commands and now there we were he was there naked, exposed like a sheep that had just been shaved, trying to cover up his failure. Saul missed the mark. The king of the Israel of Israel chose not to obey the Lord. And so what I told him was something I need you all to hear today. I told him, Saul, what's more important that you would give an offering to God or that you would obey God? That you would make sacrifices for God, or that you would submit to God? That you would do rituals for God, or have a relationship with God? Saul, which is more important? You see, Saul counted the opinions of man to be of more importance than the commands of God. And that's where he stood. Saul had selective obedience, which ultimately is disobedience. See, when you half finish a homework assignment, it is still incomplete. When you're half devoted to God, you'll be half following him. And this is where Saul was. I went on to tell him, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. You see, Saul began to think that rebellion wasn't as bad as some of those worse sins. That disobeying God wasn't as bad as these other ones, like idolatry and divination. But the problem with Saul, and the problem with many of us, is that we forget this very point. That when we ourselves are judged, we have authority over God, which then makes ourselves our own idols. This is where Saul was stuck. But perhaps what grieved me the most is what God made clear to me. I told Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. See, Saul's kingdom would come to a sudden halt. But I was grateful for his response. Saul said, I have sinned against the Lord. That sounds like repentance, doesn't it? But then he said this to me, will you forgive my sins and come with me to the people so I can stand before them with you? And what I heard in his voice was a man who was still in self-preservation mode. First of all, it's not on me to forgive sins. Second of all, he wanted me to stand with him as if me, God's representative, was showing approval of his actions. You see, when we say I'm sorry, yet still in self-preservation mode, It tells us that our sorrow is not legit. When God calls us to obedience and reveals our disobedience, we've got to correct it without making excuses. I told Saul, I'm not going to go with you, back to the elders of the people, and give you this false sense of God's approval. He fell on his knees and grabbed my robe and literally tore a piece of my robe off. And at that moment, I looked at him and I said, Saul, in the same way, God has torn the kingdom from your hand. He continued to beg and to plead. He said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. And return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. This time, though, I decided to agree to go with him. Some people have wondered if I compromised my conviction, but really what was happening was this. Rather than giving the approval of God over him in front of all his people, I wanted them to know that God was done with Saul. I went there with him as he stood before the elders of his people, giving the impression that his military victory was from the blessing and hand of God. And there we were, standing there, and I knew that God had given me this one call. And that was to complete the mission that Saul failed to accomplish. And that moment for the elders of my people, standing by my king, I made a request. Bring to me Agag king of the Amalekites, a man of royal stock and wicked pedigree, a man who was a thoroughbred in doing evil. Saul brought me the king, and that's what brought me to my grief today. Not because of what I had to do but why I had to do it. At that moment, I, as the judge of Israel, executed justice on King Ahag by taking his life. And it grieved me because God's king, Saul, refused to obey God's command. From that moment on, I walked away, went back to my home, In the town of Ramah, tears dripping from my eyes, not knowing what was to be next of the kingdom of Israel. It was a long walk. So I had a lot of time to think about what was taking place. And I began to wonder, what was it in Saul that caused him to not obey the crystal clear command from God Almighty? What was it that prevented Saul from doing the very thing that was a privilege to be God's instrument for God's plan and mission and this is what i understood Saul was a man who feared and it's not a matter if of if you will fear but it's a matter of whom you will fear Saul chose to fear man over God and that's what happens when the world revolves around you. See, when the world revolves around you, people's opinions will orbit your existence. Pleasing them will be a gravitational pull that you will find impossible to resist. I hope you hear me here today. When the world revolves around you, the praises of man will be in higher demand than the pleasures of God. God things that are obviously wrong will appear to be potentially right. And where sound reasoning once ruled the day, the pressures of voices will produce irrational choices. I don't know if you heard me there. Where sound reasoning once ruled the day, the pressures of voices will produce irrational choices. Choices when the world revolves around you. Conversely, when the world revolves around God rather than you, his words will be an anchor. The gravity keeps you on the ground in the right place. And the opinions of people at that point will be merely like a helium balloon in your hand, unable to pull you, from the anchor of your soul. Yes, it's true. People will laugh at you. What are you doing obeying God? People might insult you. They may ridicule you, attack you, mock you, and run your name through the mud. But when you hold on to your conviction and character, the opinions of people matter less. Saul misunderstood this. He wanted to honor his name over against God's name. And as he stood on the battlefield with the command of God on him and the eyes of people on him, he chose to please the people and spare the flock and all that was good and by his own decision, choose what was worthless and executed that. He spared the lambs and disobeyed God's command. What do you do with God's command? Do you, like Saul, rationalize why it doesn't need to be obeyed? Do you, like Saul, care more what people think and find a way to get around it? Even Saul himself said, we spared the lambs to sacrifice to God. You see, God still says the same thing. He wants obedience over sacrifice. He wants submission over sacrifice. He wants relationship over ritual. But before we make too much of a distinction between offerings to God and obedience to God, let's remember this. An offering without obedience is empty ritual. Hear that? An offering without obedience is empty ritual. You're just going through the motions. But obedience without offering is a contradiction in terms. You see when we obey God we offer ourselves to God. When we sacrifice to God we are giving of ourselves to God. And what Saul misunderstood was those two come together. As I walked home I told you I'm not just a judge but I'm also a prophet. And I began to think, oh if there were just one who could be perfect in obedience. And be perfect as an offering. If only there was one who would be a lamb that would not be spared. If only there was one who would obey God radically even when other people mocked him. And I began to think what God said to Saul. That your kingdom will be taken from your hand and given to another better than you. But so long as humanity is on this earth, there will always be one that needs to be better than the king. But as a prophet, I realized there would one day be a king who was better than them all. That there would one day be a king who was perfectly obedient and a king who was perfect in his offering and that this king would reign as the king of kings and would will be able to cover our sin, our shame, and our failure when we've disobeyed and let the world revolve around us. And though I was grieved to this day, I found a glimmer of hope that there might yet be a king who would reign on the throne and be perfect in his obedience. I want you to know that a king has come. And his name is Jesus. He was a lamb that was not spared, but willingly gave himself on that cross to cover your sin and shame, to execute God's judgment on your behalf upon him. And through him, you can have hope and forgiveness and eternal life. What does God call of you in response? But to let your world revolve around him to give all of who you are no matter what people say to you to willingly give of yourself to obey him to count the cost and say god you are of greater value family this is what i'm here to share with you don't let the world revolve around you but let it revolve around god Let it revolve around his king and watch what he does in your life. There is great joy in obeying God no matter what the cost because life obeyed for Jesus is a life that's worth living. Father in heaven, we come before you, Lord, knowing that you want all of us, and not some of us. God, we come today knowing how easy it is to justify editing your commands. When you tell us one thing to want to do another and find every justifiable reason for doing it. But Lord God, I pray that you would stop us in our tracks. I pray, God, that we would not fall back into self-preservation mode. Lord, I pray that we would not think more highly of our own choice over obeying you. God, I lift up my brothers in this room, my sisters in this room, our youth in this room, Lord. And I pray, God, that as your spirit exposes in their hearts your commands and the ways that they're wrestling with it, God, I pray that they would choose you. That they would choose you. God, help us set our eyes upon Jesus and find our strength to overcome sin through him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.